This is the uh, concluding lecture of this series on anti-Semitism. So uh, the first lecture dealt with anti-Semitism in the classical world, in the ancient world, which uh, I pointed out he was more of a national character. And then the second lecture dealt with uh, anti-Semitism in the medieval world, which was of a purely religious nature. This third lecture uh, deals with uh, the last uh, 250 years. Uh, to a certain extent, it's a combination of the first two, though it has a, a different base. And the base to it, as uh, I hope uh, we will see, is uh, racial, is the fact that uh, there's something in the blood of the Jew uh, that uh, causes problems, and as uh, you can well uh, understand, uh, this type of anti-Semitism is the most lethal because it is not capable of being cured. The national anti-Semitism is that the nation can disappear or assimilate or uh, somehow uh, fix its national state. And even the religious uh, state can be fixed, so to speak, because uh, if you give up the religion, <clears throat> you convert to the majority religion, so then at least theoretically the problem is solved. But racial anti-Semitism, if it's in your blood, there really is nothing you can do about it. It's a DNA anti-Semitism. And therefore, uh, it is, uh, so to speak, incurable. So let's look at uh, the, the Jewish world uh, in the at the end of the 18th and the beginning of the 19th century, especially in Europe, though eventually we'll get to the United States as well. In Europe, uh, there are uh, the major... Uh, Western world powers are Germany, which in the 19th century will be united under Prussia and uh, with Bismarck at its head. France, which after the Napoleonic War and the French Revolution is searching for its soul and is completely uh, split between the uh, rabid secularism of the revolution and the traditional Catholicism of France, uh, between monarchists and republicans, and uh, England, uh, Great Britain, which uh, then is emerging in the Industrial Revolution as being a major world power, and uh, for the first time in centuries uh, allows Jews first uh, surreptitiously, but then later uh, openly and legally uh, to uh, emigrate to England and to establish themselves in England. And then the Austro-Hungarian Empire, centered in Vienna and in Budapest, uh, these were all Western outposts. They were all Western civilization. And they came under the great influences of the Enlightenment, uh, which had existed uh, the century earlier. And uh, the uh, disestablishment of the control of the church, of religion generally, began during these centuries. And therefore, uh, the old-time anti-Semitism of religion uh, somehow began to carry less weight. Now, it has to be pointed out that uh, there are two kinds of anti-Semitism. There was anti-Semitism when you never know a Jew. Doesn't, uh, there's no Jewish population whatsoever. For instance... Uh, 
Japan or other uh, Far Eastern countries which have no Jewish population to speak of, nevertheless somehow can be anti-Semitic. And then there's the anti-Semitism that we are all accustomed to, where there are sizable pockets of Jewish population that live within the country and the civilization. And it's a theory that has been debated by historians and sociologists whether or not anti-Semitism can exist, so to speak, in the abstract. Or is it driven only by the fact that there are Jews there and not all Jews behave as they should? And in a competitive society, it is uh, seen as a zero-sum game And that means that if the Jews are successful, somebody else has to be unsuccessful. And therefore, that is what fuels anti-Semitism. Now, in the uh, 19th century, there are many forces, uh, idealistic and political, that come into being that shape the modern world certainly modern Europe, but the the modern world generally, and the Jews are part of it. Uh, The Jews from Eastern Europe, Poland, Lithuania, Russia, and Russia, remember, uh, at this time extends all the way as a border with Germany, and it includes the Baltic states and much of Poland, and uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which includes Galicia and that part of Poland and Ukraine, uh, these uh, countries have a, a lot of Jews, and the Jews are in desperate conditions, economic and social, persecuted. So naturally they want to move. The nature of people is that one searches for a better life, and where can one have a better life? And therefore, there is a trend of Jewish population moving east to west in Europe. Eventually, by the end of the century, this will become a flood of Jewish immigration, but that will be across the ocean to the United States. But at the beginning of the 18th century, they're moving. So they, uh, they move into Germany. Now, Germany at this time, the Jewish population becomes reform. By reform, I mean it becomes assimilated. They're good Germans. That's their primary goal in life. So therefore, they speak German and they think German and they dress German. And uh, they try to blend in and become more German than the Germans. Now, this has a strange effect. One would think that because of that, the Germans would accept them. But uh, a strange phenomenon exists in this century that uh, the more assimilated the Jews became, the less acceptable they became because of the fact that somehow the native population uh, resented them, resented the fact that uh, they were so German and resented their success, Uh, resented the fact that somehow within a generation they would be able to rise to prominence and to wealth. Uh, So, for instance, the story of the Rothschilds which in Jewish history is a success story, how a little money changer in Frankfurt am Main came to build a financial empire that ruled Europe for a century. So to us, Rothschild is a hero. But to many uh, of that century, uh, the Rothschilds were the villains. And uh, they had no right to... uh, become the 
preeminent bankers in Europe. They had no right to uh, somehow uh, achieve that success. When uh, native Germans who had lived in Germany for three, four, five hundred years uh, were not uh, that successful. And because of the competition between the bankers, so those uh, German bankers, there were many of them that were successful, but they uh, resented Rothschild and they resented his, uh, the success of the Rothschild family, and they did so in purely anti-Semitic terms. And uh, this uh, ambivalent attitude uh, exists throughout Europe. It exists within the Jewish people and outside of the Jewish people. Is success good for us or not? Does success guarantee acceptance, or does success guarantee only a greater deal of anti-Semitism? And this is a question, I think, that remains unresolved until today. Uh, Because uh, does the world approve of our success, or does it resent it? We'll put it in nationalistic terms today, uh, the success of the state of Israel, is that good or not? And uh, again, in a zero-sum game, if the state of Israel is successful, then somebody else has to be unsuccessful. And uh, those who are unsuccessful are going to resent it uh, and resent it violently. Now, uh, The uh, Jews come to England, establish themselves in Great Britain. By the 1840s, as a chief rabbi, Nathan Adler of the United Synagogue. Uh, and uh, how does England look at the Jews? Well, the English intelligentsia. Uh, Thackeray, Wordsworth, uh, Charles Dickens, uh, when you see it in uh, Dickens' novel, Oliver Twist, the villain of the piece is a Jew by the name of Fagin, who is portrayed with all of the uh, animus uh, of anti-Semitism that uh, could be mustered, but that was the picture at the time. And... uh, Uh, That's the image of the Jew. In England, uh, there is a man by the name of Disraeli who rises to prominence. He's a Tory politician. He is a convert to to the Anglican Church, uh, but he's born Jewish, and he never denies his Jewish ancestry, and not only never denies it, uses it to his advantage. And so to speak, he sticks it to his enemies uh, when he used to speak in the House of Commons. So the backbenchers of the Liberal Party would shout, old clothes for sale, meaning that he was a peddler, which is what uh, the original Jewish immigrants uh, engaged in in order to make a living. But the Israeli always retorted. He said, uh, my ancestors were priests in the temple in Jerusalem when England was a marsh, when it was a swamp, when uh, your ancestors uh, weren't out of the caves yet. So he he put a different flavor on it. And even though he was a uh, an apostate Jew, and I mentioned an Anglican, he was always seen as a Jew. And uh, the fact that he rose to be prime minister and that he was a favorite of Queen Victoria uh, made a strong impression. So here you had also Jewish success. Now his opponent, his political opponent, Gladstone, who was the head of the Liberal Party, was a bitter anti-Semite. 
Uh, was he an anti-Semite because of Disraeli or in spite of Disraeli? It's hard to read people. It's hard to know. If Disraeli would not have existed, would Gladstone have been an anti-Semite? Uh, would the, the British aristocracy generally was not uh, happy with Jews? But because, again, the Rothschilds played such an important part in British economic and even social life, uh, they had to somehow come to some sort of an accommodation with them. So you had the famous incident that one of the Rothschilds was elected to the House of Commons. And uh, at that period of time in the 1800s, uh, if you were elected to the House of Commons, you had to take an oath uh, to uh, support uh, the monarchy and uh, England, etc. And it was a Christian oath. And Rothschild refused to uh, take it. And uh, therefore, he was refused uh, entry into the House of Commons to take his seat, even though he was elected twice. Both times he was turned down. Eventually, uh, the bill was passed in the House of Commons that amended the oath, and that allowed uh, a nonconformist, so to speak, like Jews, to uh, have an oath that uh, did not refer to the Christian Savior, and therefore he was able to take his seat. Uh, again, that cuts both ways. It's a uh, great achievement. It shows tolerance. It shows the entrance of uh, modern viewpoints on differing religions. On the other hand, if you're uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury and you're the head of the Church of England, and the Church of England is an official church of England, it's not a church in England, it's the Church of England. Well, so then you pretty much resent that because of the fact that uh, the uh, amendment to the oath automatically means that you're not the church of England. You're a church, maybe the biggest church, but you're not the church of England because you can sit in the House of Commons and not take a Christian oath. Uh, so, uh, there's a large immigration of Jews to England, Eastern European Jews, the East End of London, but to other places, Liverpool, Manchester, and Ireland, uh, and uh, these are a different breed of people. They're not English. Now, they rapidly attempt to become English, But uh, most of them never quite make it because the British aristocracy was then at least a very closed shop. And uh, even the Rothschilds were barely tolerated, and they were tolerated only because of the fact that uh, the English needed, him, needed them uh, so desperately. Uh, in the uh, imperialist age. So uh, it's a mixed bag. Now, into this mixed bag, if we would have left all of this alone, uh, for instance, Jews moved to Vienna. Eastern European Jews, Polish Jews moved in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. They moved to Vienna. By the end of the 19th century, the Jews are 10 12% of the population of Vienna. And not only that, they are very influential in Vienna. You got Mahler and Stefan Zweig, and you got Freud. Uh, you have leading intellects. Uh, Vienna resembles what New York would resemble later. It's not majority Jewish, 
but it certainly is a lot Jewish. And therefore there arises in Vienna an anti-Semitic party which says uh, we're not going to let the the city of uh, Mozart, uh, we're not going to let all of this, uh, the Habsburgs, everything be dominated by Jews. Now, uh, the uh, Habsburg rulers of the Austro-Hungarian Empire were also a mixed bag. In 1840, they passed the Edict of Tolerance, which gives Jews rights, uh, which removes many, if not most, of the restrictions on Jews, which is very progressive. But at the same time, there are, within 50 years at least, there arises in Vienna a large anti-Semitic political party headed by a, name, a man by the name of Karl Lieger, and uh, he's an open anti-Semite, and he runs on the platform uh, the Jews are too powerful, we're going to cut them down. We're going to cut them down to size. And he is elected three times as the mayor of Vienna in a democratic election. So again, you have it coming both ways. Uh, Mahler, for instance, wants to be the uh, musical director of the great Viennese Philharmonic Orchestra, which then was uh, probably one of the three top uh, philharmonic orchestras in the world when philharmonic orchestras were the epitome of musical achievement. Mahler is Jewish. Because of the fact he is Jewish, he is denied the uh, position that uh, he really was fit for and that he so desired. When he realizes that that position is denied to him simply because of his Jewishness, he converts and he becomes a Christian. Once he becomes a Christian... He is uh, granted his wish, so to speak, and the board of directors of the Viennese Philharmonic elect him to be the uh, conductor. However, he is always sabotaged by the orchestra that does not play well for him. Whenever he conducts, it is not the sterling performance of the Viennese Philharmonic. Mahler will gain his reputation as a conductor, not as a composer. But as a conductor, only when he's the guest conductor of the New York Philharmonic, because the New York Philharmonic did play for him. So you have always this mixed bag, you know, you got anti-Semitism rising and Jews rising. Uh, then we come to the classic case. Uh, which has to be uh, seen as a watershed in Jewish history, if not even in all European history, is the uh, Dreyfus Affair in France, where uh, in, uh, France is invaded in 1870 by uh, the Prussian army, and uh, Prussia, Germany, crushes France in six weeks, uh, deposes the government, occupies Paris, takes reparations, annexes uh, two French provinces, Alsace and Lorraine, and incorporates them into Germany. France is humiliated. Now, it's one thing to lose a war. It's another thing to be humiliated by losing the war. And the humiliation burns very deeply within the national spirit of a country. Uh, for instance, uh, the First World War, I, I did this uh, 10-part series on the First World War, but it was obvious that uh, Germany lost the war, 
but had felt humiliated by the Treaty of Versailles. Whether they were correct in feeling so or not is a matter of uh, debate and discussion. But they felt humiliated. And uh, Hitler was able to capitalize on that hum- feeling of humiliation. Well, France is humiliated. Well, when a country is humiliated, it looks for scapegoats. How did it happen? How could such a thing have happened? How could it be that the great French army, which is earlier in the century under Napoleon, dominated all of Europe, falls in six weeks against Prussia? So, they came up with the idea, and interestingly enough, it was a correct idea, that there were spies in the French general staff that revealed the plans and the layout of the French army to the Germans, so that when the Germans attacked, they had an enormous advantage, because they knew where the French were, and they knew what they planned to do, and they were able, therefore, to uh, preempt it and surround them and uh, force their capitulation. Ironically, this is true. There were spies. But as uh, the French press, uh, over the next decade, decade and a half, built up this uh, myth, then it was a myth, but built up this story that France had been betrayed. So uh, we began to look for who were the people who betrayed them. And by an accident of history, and we all know that uh, there are no accidents of history, just as we are living now through also an accident of history that we know is not an accident. Somehow something is being communicated to us. But anyway, through an accident of history, one of the members of the French general staff was a Jew by the name of uh, Alfred Dreyfus. Uh, Dreyfus uh, was not a high-ranking officer. He was not a general. He was a colonel, a colonel major, so one of the, you know, the second tier of officers. And he had a staff assignment. He wasn't one of the major planners or anything. And nevertheless, since he was a Jew, uh, the French general staff, to protect itself, immediately suspected him and uh, the uh, two main conspirators who were actually in the pay of the German army, uh, a man by the name of Esther Hazy, who was a Hungarian soldier of fortune that was on the staff, and uh, Colonel Henri, these two conspired to frame Dreyfus. And they framed him with false documents, forged signatures, all sorts of uh, constructed evidence. And even though Dreyfus denied everything and he was completely blameless, uh, the French general staff, in order to restore its honor and to get under the, uh, get out from under the umbrella of humiliation, uh, pursued it to the end. And uh, Dreyfus was court-martialed, and when he was court-martialed, he was uh, expelled from the French army, sentenced for treason, shipped off to Devil's Island, the French penal colony, in the Caribbean, most people only lasted six months there. And that was supposed to be the end of it. However, it unleashed a tidal wave of anti-Semitism in France. Because 
especially amongst the uh, French monarchists and the uh, conservative element, the right, and the church, uh, they said, see, we, you know, you wanted to make it more liberal, the Jews should be here. You see what happens when the Jews come here. By another accident of history, Theodore Herzl, who is a reporter for uh, the Viennese newspaper owned by Jews, the New Free World, covers the trial, and when he hears the shouts in the street of death to the Jews, he is so struck by the anti-Semitism so virulently expressed, and this is in Paris, where there's liberty and fraternity and equality, uh, that he searches for an answer to anti-Semitism, and he comes up with the novel idea that if the Jews have a nation-state, anti-Semitism will disappear. This is the birth of Zionism, which is a different topic completely for which you haven't paid to hear a lecture. Now, uh, Dreyfus eventually is acquitted. Uh, The real spies are exposed. Uh, But the damage has been done. There's a Uh, To use a current word, there's a virus been implanted in French society. The Jews are disloyal. The Jews can't be trusted. The Jews are capable of anything. And they're not real Frenchmen. So no matter how much the Jews will try to be real Frenchmen or real Englishmen or real Germans or real Austrians, they'll never quite make it. And the fact that they are trying so hard to do so only aggravates the situation. It doesn't make it any better. Into this uh, cauldron of uh, uncertainty, we have to throw in a few other things, unbelievable things. In the 19th century, Uh, there's a man by the name of Karl Marx, who is German, born a Jew. His father converts to become a Christian. His mother stubbornly refuses and remains Jewish. Uh, Marx, uh, all of his life, hated his mother. He felt that her stubbornness uh, cost him whatever chance they had in life. Uh, Sigmund Freud would have had a uh, field day uh, uh, describing Karl Marx. But uh, in any event, uh, Marx uh, concocts this theory of history and of economics. He divides the world into classes. There's the proletariat. and He sees the excesses of capitalism. Uh, He sees... uh, Uh, the uh, factory workshop at its worst. And he comes up with his his ideas of socialism and communism. Marxism, he writes his uh, major thesis, Das Kapital. But uh, Marx, uh, because of his uh, Jewish ancestry, is the most rabid anti-Semite probably in the 19th century. He writes a little pamphlet called The World Without Jews, in which he ascribes every evil known to human civilization to the fact that there are Jews around. And uh, his hatred of Jews also expresses itself in the hatred of religion. In religion, he feels, is uh, the uh, break that holds back the progress of mankind, and therefore it must be destroyed. And he thinks about destroyed, not destroyed in the world of ideas, but in the world of revolution, uh, violence. And it's all justified because 
we are going to bring about this great new world, the utopia that everybody was hoping for, is really on the way. It's right here. And we can do it. And he proposes how it's going to happen, etc. And uh, because of the fact that utopian ideas always find favor in the eyes of people, it's the easy way out. I don't have to do anything because utopia is going to happen. And that there's always going to be a world without problems. The democracies, when they hold elections, every time they hold an election, it's because people promise that they will solve all the problems. The fact that they never do uh, in no way inhibits them from continuing to promise it and in no way inhibits people from voting for them on the theory that somehow they're going to solve the problem. And uh, that is one of the uh, amazing uh, uh, really uh, questions that exist uh, throughout uh, human history, certainly the last few centuries, is how come we don't get it? But uh, be that as it may, uh, Marx promised, and uh, he developed the revolutionary class, uh, which different groupings, but eventually, for a period of time, uh, especially in the 20th century, appeared that it would be the dominant force in the world. And even today, it controls uh, hundreds of millions, if not more, of people of resources, and is the favorite uh, expression of what the world should look like as far as most academics in the Western world are concerned. In this uh, former Soviet world, it's very hard to find a dedicated communist. You find authoritarians, but not communists. But in our world... Uh, we like to think that somehow communism will work if it's only if we only had the right people, without realizing that the system itself prevents it from working. Again, uh, Marxism is loosed in the world, and it brings with it a virulent anti-Semitism, and the virulent anti-Semitism expresses itself within the Jewish world. And within the Jewish world, Marxism takes hold, it becomes anti-religion in the extreme, and really anti-Jewish. And in effect it says to the anti-Semites, you know, you were right all the time, you know, and look, and we have to uproot it, we have to change society. Then there is another force that comes into the world uh, in the uh, 19th century, Darwinism. Now, Charles Darwin, uh, with his uh, theory on the uh, origin of species, uh, which for short uh, we call evolution, uh, postulated that uh, there is something called the nature of the fittest, the survival of the fittest. In other words, that nature itself sorts out the best genes and the best uh, uh, qualities, and they these species survive, and the other species somehow, over time, uh, disappear because they don't have the equipment to deal anymore with the new conditions that society has. Uh, I don't want to enter into a debate about Darwinism. There are tremendous debates about it today. They uh, kick back against Darwinism is very strong. Even though Darwinism dominates the biological field of science, 
every textbook is a Darwinist textbook. But there have been, uh, there have arisen, especially over the past decades, uh, quite a number of great thinkers, scholars, etc., that question the entire premise and have pointed out that there is no proof that any species ever evolved from any other species, and that all of the mutations that exist are relatively minor, and they're within the species itself. And therefore, to extrapolate from that, this idea of the survival of the fittest uh, is really a great leap, both in terms of biology and in terms of philosophy it swept the board. From Darwinism in biology, there arose a school of thought called social Darwinism, which meant that just like uh, the survival of the fittest exists uh, in the animal kingdom, it exists in human being kingdom as well, because we are no more than animals. We evolved from animals, and therefore we're the same. And therefore there are certain uh, races, uh, cultures, uh, ideas, peoples, uh, that really are not part of the fittest, and that should fall by the wayside. And if they don't fall fast enough, uh, we'll give them a push. And naturally, one of the victims of the survival of the fittest doctrine is the Jewish people, because the Jewish people are not fit for anything. That was uh, in the, That's built on that platform of anti-Semitism. So we have people like Stuart Chamberlain and others uh, that advance these theories. So you have a lethal combination here. You have Marxism... And then you have Darwinism, and you have secularism, all ganging up, so to speak, to create an image of the Jew. Uh, many times this image is incidental. That isn't, that isn't their purpose. But if it's not their purpose, it becomes the result. And when it becomes the result, then uh, that's what happens. Now, when the Jews came to the United States, they also faced great anti-Semitism. But that's a different anti-Semitism. That was a uh, competition between immigrant groups, between the Irish and the Italians and the Slavs and the Jews uh, and the blacks for a place in society. Uh, so, uh, naturally, uh, each side called the other side names. Uh, and uh, the uh, idea of uh, at least religious tolerance or public tolerance was baked into the American system. And therefore, even though there was great anti-Semitism, the Ku Klux Klan, let's say, in the 1920s, Nevertheless, uh, Jews felt more secure, had more opportunity, and were more willing to become American as quickly as they could. And they truly felt that by becoming American, all problems of anti-Semitism would disappear. Originally, Jews in America organized against anti-Semitism anti-defamation league of the B'nai B'rith and other such organizations American Civil Liberties Union but eventually they felt that they didn't need it anymore that uh, Jews in America became so accepted that a they were no longer a, mino- a minority we didn't ca- you don't count yourself as uh, a minority that needs special help and b uh, it, uh, it disappeared. What happened uh, was that uh, 
both Hitler and Stalin arose. Two uh, historical phenomena that, again, uh, were not predictable. In perfect hindsight, we can see how it happened. But uh, when it's happening, no one sees how it happened. And uh, Hitler converted uh, the Jewish people into the scapegoat of Europe, and he revived every form of anti-Semitism which ever existed, whether it be religious or not. And because of that, therefore, the Holocaust was able to occur. The Holocaust could not have occurred without the cooperation of Europe. You just can't kill six million people without people knowing about it and somehow acquiescing to it. And uh, Hitler was able to get away with it. And then you have Stalin. So even though the Jews were Marxists and many of Stalin's cohorts were Jews, Zinoviev, Kamenev, Trotsky, Kaganovich, uh, Litvinov, uh, nevertheless, Stalin uh, was determined to destroy the Jewish people. He fomented the doctor's plot in 1953 uh, that would have uh, sent all the Jews of Russia into the Gulag. He died before he could... Uh, put the plan into execution and his successors never uh, were able or I don't know if they were even willing to follow through on it but again uh, the the Jew the Jewish issue remained the main issue in Russia the dissidents were Jews let my people go immigration to Israel that, that was the linchpin on which uh, the West was certain that they would nudge the Soviet Union out of power. And that's exactly what happened. The Soviet Union fell to, uh, really, to a bunch of Jews that uh, denied uh, the Soviet system and wanted to somehow attach themselves to the Jewish people. Uh, one of the ironies of history is that the Soviet Union, because of the fact that it forced the Jews to carry identity cards which said, Israel, that you're Jewish, and your identity card, they guaranteed that Jews would remain Jews. So again, you have the question, does assimilation help or hurt? Is it good for the Jews or not good for the Jews? No way to answer that. And then the final point uh, is the arrival of the State of Israel. And now that is something that certainly is not supposed to happen. Uh, according to Christian theology, it was a non-starter from the beginning. There's a reason why the Vatican never recognized Israel till, uh, you know, till uh, 50 years after its existence. Because it's not just diplomacy and the Arabs. It's, it's a theological problem. You have to figure out how to reconcile that with Christian dogma, that the Jews are to remain in eternal exile. And then once you're a nation state, so then the nation state has policies, does things, does great things, and makes mistakes. So... Uh, does the world look at the state of Israel the way it looks at Canada, let's say? Free democratic country that makes mistakes or doesn't make mistakes, but that uh, is not really that special? Or does it look like it, at it the way it looks at it today? That everything it does is scrutinized? Uh, it's always uh, treated in a special way. Uh, and then you have this uh, anti-Semitism that uh, 
fueled by the Muslim world simply out of the humiliation of the fact that after three wars and over seven uh, decades, the Jewish state is uh, successful and thriving and existent, while uh, its neighbors are pretty much stuck where they were 70 years ago without much progress in real terms, uh, economic, social, philosophical, influential in the world generally. So then that's an anti-Semitism of jealousy. An anti, and again, an anti-Semitism built on the fact that somehow uh, it was taken from us. The land really belongs to us. The situation really belongs to us. And somehow uh, we allowed it to escape from us and we have to rectify it. And therefore, uh, that we reinforce all of the anti-Semitic uh, diatribes that have existed over all of the centuries in order to accomplish the end that we want, which is, so to speak, God forbid, uh, the elimination or the weakening of the state of Israel. So uh, it's a complicated world, and a very complicated world. And we are caught up now in uh, this uh, terrible plague that has afflicted all of mankind. The Jews are no exception to it. So in the ancient world, or in the medieval world, a plague like this would be blamed upon the Jews. Because there has to be somehow a scapegoat, a reason. How could such a thing happen? How could the whole world be brought level in a few months' time by an unseen virus. However, uh, thank God, in our time, because of science and because of communication and because of the fact that maybe the world has learned something, uh, we're not really looking, looking for scapegoats. We know that the virus started in China, but uh, the world is not about to destroy China because of it. So it's not like the Black Death or the bubonic plague that occurred in the Middle Ages when Jews poisoned the wells. And no one says anymore that Jews poisoned the wells here. So we have to be of good cheer. It's amazing that we have survived all of this, especially over the last two centuries. And not only survived, but we're in much better shape than we ever were. And God should help that we should continue to be be this way, and that uh, this uh, scourge will pass from us, and that we will all be able to uh, emerge from our homes and our isolation in good health and happiness. Thank you all.